Buongiorno, benvenuto. Welcome to episode 17 of City Breaks Florence, the episode in which we, yes, finally get to that most famous spot for the tourist in Florence, and namely the Uffizi Gallery. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the gallery in general, and then run through a few highlights of things to see there. Needless to say, that could run to dozens of episodes by itself, but I'm going to confine myself to just a very few things, the ones that most people talk and write most about when they've been. And then the final section, I'm going to devote to a little bit of information on the artist Botticelli, who is one of the big draws of this museum and whom we haven't mentioned in any other context when I've been talking about other artists. But as a starting point, I thought I will quote a short extract from a book called Notes from England and Italy, which was published in 1858 and written by Sophia Peabody. She was an artist and illustrator from New England, obviously on a grand tour over here in Europe. And I just really like this marvellously sniffy extract from her diary in which she describes a visit to the Uffizi and somebody she met there whom she didn't really rate at all. So this is what she wrote. Quote, there were in the gallery two Englishmen, one a tall red-faced squire and fox hunter, fancy with a loud lumbering voice like a sledgehammer, slightly modulated by a certain amount of civilization. He plainly had no perception of art at all, but he was quite sure he had, and that he was an accomplished connoisseur, as he knew the names and reputations of the pictures. Quite mean, I think. The poor man was obviously just trying an art gallery and he'd even been to the trouble of doing some reading before he got there. But she obviously knew much more than he did and found him in irritation. As an aside, she was a little bit of a character, I've discovered, writing at the age of 30 to her sister, quote, I never intend to have a husband. And then being difficult when her sister had a visitor, one Nathaniel Peabody, whom she wanted Sophia to come down and meet. And to persuade her, her sister used the phrase, but he's handsomer than Lord Byron. Sophia wasn't impressed, refused to come down, saying, well, if he's come once, he'll come again. And she was right. In fact, he made repeated visits to the house. After a certain while, Sophia got secretly engaged to him and they married. Don't know what the sister thought of that. So just a warning then, if you're tall or red-faced or have a voice like a sledgehammer, you may wish to tone it down a bit in the Uffizi in case a modern-day Sophia Peabody is there writing down a description for posterity. Anyway, the Uffizi. The building dates from 1560. Duke Cosimo de' Medici had it commissioned. He asked Vasari to design it. He wanted some offices, that's what the word Uffizi means, built next to the palace. That is the Palazzo Vecchio from which he had been working. And just a few years after that, in 1565, he asked Vasari to build the what's today known as the Vasari Corridor, so the corridor which starts at here at the Uffizi and goes across the Arno to the Palazzo Pitti used also as an art gallery, as I mentioned in a previous episode. I've also mentioned in previous episodes how much art the various Medici collected and how they passed their art on one to another and the family collection grew, to the point in 1743 when the last of the Medici, Anna Maria Luisa, died, childless, and so that was the end of the line. But the marvellous thing that she did for Florence was she left her art to the city, In fact, the wording in her will says, quote, to the people of Florence, never to be moved. And so Florence was to be forevermore the base for the Medici art collection, something which really has contributed to its reputation as a city of art and indeed as a tourist venue. 
It underwent some quite big changes in the 19th century. Many of the statues which were there were moved to the Bargello, and a lot of the antiquities moved to the Museo Archeologico. So that means, unfortunately, if you want to see those things and the paintings, you've got now got three entries to pay. And it also means that what's left here in the Uffizi is largely painting and drawings. It's described in one of the guidebooks I looked at as, quote, the finest picture gallery in Italy. And as well as the amazingly high quality of the art which there is to see there, you also need to know about the size, 101 rooms altogether, covering paintings from the 13th to the 17th century. So the big question is always going to be where to start and what to see. Might help to know a little bit about how the collection's organised, so it's vaguely chronological, but it's also organised in different categories as well. So, for example, there are some rooms which are very much geographical in flavour, so they relate to a particular place. There are rooms for artists from Siena, for example, and Venice and Lombardy. And there are other rooms dedicated to art from a particular country, so you can see Spanish or Dutch or French or Flemish paintings grouped together. Other rooms are dedicated to particular artists, so a whole host of Italy's most well-known artists have a room or rooms to themselves, and that would include Lippi and Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, Caravaggio, Titian, so that might help in your planning. And a third way in which things are organised is by medium. So there are particular rooms dedicated to miniatures, for example, or sculpture, uh, rooms to prints and drawings, but mainly it's paintings. And because there's such a wealth of goodies on offer, I think nowhere is it more important to get a plan, an actual floor plan, and see what's where, and then make a plan, pick out what it is you really want to see. Bearing in mind that you can book in advance, and that's definitely a good idea. There'll still be a mini queue when you get there for the advance tickets, but you will feel very smug when you cast your eye over the people in the other much, much longer queue who've just turned up on the day. I'm pretty sure that serious art lovers would go more than once. So if that's you, that's something else to bear in mind when planning your schedule. I think for a first visit, and or for an ordinary, in inverted commas, art lover, probably highlights is the way to go. And that's certainly the approach I decided to pick for this episode. I'm going to pick out really just a very few highlights that I personally think are completely unmissable and hope that that might be of some help and use to you. And actually, massive though the museum is, the very first completely unmissable highlights, I thought, were in practically the first room. I think it was room two, labelled the Maesta. So Maesta means majesty, and it's come to mean Madonna enthroned as well. And this is one room with three of the most fabulous Madonnas that you will ever see. They're by three different artists, namely Duccio, Cimabue and Giotto. Quite large, certainly much bigger than I was expecting. One of them I've seen the measurements for was 4.5 metres tall and 3 metres wide. And they're displayed, just one on each wall, in this otherwise very plain room, which really sets them off at their best and makes for a very striking opening viewing when you arrive at the Uffizi. To take them in chronological order then, we need to start with the Duccio and the Cimabue, which both date from about 1285-1290. And the Giotto was painted about a generation later, in about 1310. Duccio, whose full name is 
Duccio di Buoninsegna, that's quite hard to say, came from Siena, and his version of the Madonna was originally commissioned for Santa Maria Novella in Florence. It shows the Virgin and Child, surrounded by angels, and it's thought to be the largest surviving 13th century work anywhere in the world, as I mentioned, 4.5 metres high. And it's painted in the most beautiful colours. The angels, for example, are dressed in green and pink and lilac and pale blue. And all of that is offset against the gold of the halo, the gold colour being used to show holiness. So Mary's halo is painted in gold. Moving on to the Cimabue, that too was painted for a church in Florence, this time for Santa Trinita. And it's a bit more Byzantine in style, so you've got lots of those lovely jewel colours and also a lot of gold. And in this painting, there's the first hint of perspective. Painting perspective was a new idea for the end of the 13th century, and this is one of the early examples. And then the third Madonna, the Giotto one, is often called the first painting of the Renaissance, because Giotto made his figures more human than artists before that had done. They weren't so flat, they were more natural looking. And also, he tried to get across the idea of 3D in his figures. Again, quite a new idea in European art at that time. So, for example, when he wants to show the folds in the fabric, he didn't paint them in gold, as Cimabue had done, but he tried to use light and shadow, maybe paler colours and darker ones, to show that there were folds. All three are stunningly beautiful, and I really think that room two is a room in which you can linger for quite a while. Then you'll turn your attention to where next, and if you're really looking for highlights, I would suggest perhaps you go along to rooms 10 to 14, where the Botticelli are. These are the largest and most visited rooms in the Uffizi, and Botticelli, of course, is one of the big draws in Florence, one of the reasons why people come particularly to this city to see the art. So I think it would be a good idea to just fill in a few biographical details about him. So we know that he was born in roughly 1444, perhaps 1445, and that when he was young, he was apprenticed to a goldsmith. And after a few years doing that, he moved on to work with Fra Lippi, where I think his talent must have been spotted because he was taken in under the wing then of the Medici family. There's a nice paragraph in Paul Stratham's book, The Medici, which describes Botticelli arriving at the Medici household as follows, quote, Botticelli was taken on as a member of the family by Piero and Lucrezia. He would eat at table with them, along with Lorenzo, who was just five years younger than him, and the cherubic younger Giuliano, who would become his favourite. In summer, he would travel with the family out to Caffagiolo. He would also listen intently at the meetings of the Platonic Academy, which took place in the Medici residences. The platonic ideas of Ficino and the classical mythology of Poliziano would introduce him to an entirely new world which would fill the gap left by his inattentive school days. That reference to him learning about the classics by listening in at the study group, the Platonic Society, is important because, of course, he chose classical themes for quite a few of his very well-known paintings. So he was obviously taking it all in. His first full-scale Masterpiece painting was painted, in fact, for the Medici to mark an important moment in their lives. It was after an attempted coup when Lorenzo, who was only 17 at the time, had to rescue his father, Pierre the Gouty, from an ambush. And in celebration of this having gone so well for the Medici, Botticelli painted the Adoration of the Magi. It was going to be a Thanksgiving altarpiece for the Church of Santa Maria Novella, 
and Botticelli puts several of the Medici family into it. Lorenzo, of course, is central, being the hero of the day. Lorenzo wasn't particularly good-looking, I don't think, but in this painting he's shown at his best, or possibly more that, more so. Paul Strathan's quite amusing. He says his face has been idealised rather than showing, quote, the charismatic ugliness of reality. Ouch. One of the three wise men figures turns out to be Cosimo de' Medici, obviously a posthumous painting, and his son Piero is also there as a wise man. Giorgio Vasari gives us to understand that perhaps the picture of Cosimo was a better likeness because he called it, quote, a most faithful and animated likeness of Cosimo de' Medici. Lorenzo went to some lengths to make sure that Botticelli was able to continue his paintings, even though the Medici Bank by this stage wasn't doing quite so well and it was sometimes hard to find the money, but Lorenzo responded to that by making sure that Botticelli was given lots of work. He would find other people to commission him so that his talents were always well used. And of course it was to Botticelli that Lorenzo turned after the Pazzi conspiracy when his brother Giuliano had been killed and he wanted a painting of the Pazzi conspirators being hanged so that everybody in Florence would remember their fate. As Paul Strathan puts it, quote, Botticelli was ordered to depict in every lifelike detail the portraits of the men who would be publicly mocked, the men who had murdered the brother they had both grown up with, the brother they had both loved. It's a rather curious fact that later in his life, Botticelli fell under the influence of Savonarola, to the extent that he actually gave up painting, or as Vasari puts it, he became, quote, so zealous that he abandoned painting. And there is a real fear that there'd be more of his works today if he hadn't actually destroyed them in the bonfire of the vanities. Bizarrely, Botticelli, who's so popular today, was largely forgotten for several hundred years. He really only became popular again in the 19th century. People going on grand tours to Florence began to discover him and tell each other about the beauty of his work. And before long, he was one of the must-see painters for people visiting Italy. He died in 1510 when he was in his 60s and was buried in Florence in the Church of Ognissanti. Some of his very best works are collected here in the Uffizi and they fall really into two categories. So there are the works on the classical themes, such as Primavera and the Birth of Venus and Minerva, but there are also Christian paintings, particularly two Madonnas. Both categories are marvellous, but I think if you had to choose, you'd probably say that it's for his pagan paintings that he's best known. The 19th century philosopher Ruskin, for example, described Botticelli as, quote, the man in whom the spirit of Greece was born again. So this idea of the Renaissance when Painters like Botticelli rediscovered what had been done so many centuries before and had a go at painting subjects from what they thought of as this superior civilization. And so, as a sample of what there is by Botticelli in the Uffizi, I'm going to introduce four paintings, two classical in theme and then two Madonnas. So the first one is Primavera, or Spring, as it's known in English, painted in about 1478, when Botticelli was in his early 30s. It's both a very Florentine painting and a Renaissance painting, because it shows Roman gods in a Tuscan landscape, so combining the two, the Roman gods harking back to the classics set in Tuscany. It was originally hung in the Medici summer house, it's thought that perhaps it was a wedding gift, and it shows Cupid, the god of erotic love, and Mercury, and Flora, the goddess of fecundity, 
whose scattering flowers over the fertile landscape, highly symbolic of course. Right in the centre there's Venus, the goddess of love, surrounded by beautiful nature. It's thought that for the painting of Flora, Botticelli took a real-life model, namely Simonetta Vespucci. It's quite a sad story. She was said to be the great love of Giuliano de' Medici, but she had died a year before the painting was done, at the age of only 17. She had consumption. And this depiction, which captures her beauty, is very poignant because, of course, she's surrounded by living nature and symbols of fertility. And yet everybody who saw the painting at the time would know that she didn't live long enough to enjoy marriage and children. And the second classical painting, equally famous, is The Birth of Venus, which is thought to have been commissioned by Lorenzo de' Medici as a wedding gift for one of his wards. It's based on a story from mythology, the story of Venus, who was conceived when her father Uranus fertilised the sea. And the painting captures her at the moment when she emerges from the sea in Cyprus. Winds are blowing her to the shore, nymphs are waiting there to shower her in roses and, of course, to cover her nudity. She's a representation of beauty with her delicate skin and her long flowing curls. The very picture of grace. E.H. Gombrich, in his art history book written in the 1950s, describes Venus as follows, quote, a delicate beauty which wafted to our shores as a gift from heaven. In this painting too, Simonetta Vespucci is recalled, both in memory of her actual beauty and also as a representation of something more spiritual. Paul Strathan explains it as follows, quote, This time she appears both more beautiful and more ethereal, a haunting evocation of the young virgin without a human face. The legendary beauty that Giuliano and Lorenzo had loved in her life now becomes an otherworldly emblem of the platonic love which created the world. This Venus has an idealised spiritual quality. Paul Strathan also explains the way in which both these paintings, Primavera and The Birth of Venus, represent a new trend in art that was just becoming widespread as Botticello was painting. Before that, there'd been so much art that was frescoes that was built onto the walls of buildings, but artists in Botticelli's time began painting on canvas and framing their works. So they were no longer going to be in a church. Perhaps there was less need for them to be religious in imagery. And this made a huge difference because it meant that new themes became possible. Things that weren't connected to the church in any way. Paul Strathan explains it like this. Quote, Paintings were now becoming valuable private possessions rather than devotional treasures and their contents would begin to reflect this. In the preceding centuries of the medieval era, the church had been seen as the fount of knowledge, the sole spiritual source, its religion, the inspiration of art. Now art was extending itself beyond its traditional confines. It was becoming secular, an embodiment of rediscovered learning and new scientific theories, a movable possession to be admired in the home, a celebration of philosophy or life rather than religion. Instead of stylized saints, these paintings were inhabited by portraits of recognisable human beings. But all of that being said, Botticelli did also paint some very lovely religious pictures, and two which are to be found here in the Uffizi are both Madonnas. The Madonna of the Magnificat and the Madonna of the Pomegranate. Both unusual in that they're in what is known as the tondo form, which means they were painted round on a circular canvas. The Madonna of the Magnificat shows Mary being crowned by two angels, 
and it shows her writing. We're to understand that she's writing the Magnificat, the prayer that she made when the angel visited her and gave her the good news that she was pregnant with the Son of God. Even here, in a religious painting, Botticelli took a real person as his model because it's believed that the face of Mary is modelled on Lucrezia Tornabui, who was the wife of Piero de' Medici. Again, another chance for him to record his thanks to the Medici family in his work for all that they had done for him. And the two angels, the faces of the two angels, are thought to be modelled on Lucrezia and Piero's two sons, Lorenzo and Giuliano the two younger members of the family with whom he'd grown up. The Madonna of the Pomegranate shows Mary holding a pomegranate because that was a symbol of suffering. So you can tell as well from the sad reflective expressions of Mary and of Christ in the picture that they have an idea of the suffering which is to come. But in fact, pomegranate is also seen as a symbol of rebirth. The seeds, which are very prominent in the picture will grow into a new plant, and so for that reason they represent rebirth, regeneration, and of course in a Christian context, the resurrection. The angels in the picture are worshipping Mary with lilies and roses, both of which are symbols of Mary, and the one on the left is wearing a ribbon with the writing on it, Ave Gratia Plena, which really means hail, full of grace, so hail Mary, full of grace. And finally, from all the wondrous selection of goodies to choose from, I've picked two more paintings which actually come as a pair and which were done by Piero della Francesca in the 1460s. And they show Federico da Montefeltro and his wife, Battista Sforza. Federico was the ruler of the city-state of Urbino, hence the painting's title, The Duke and Duchess of Urbino. It's actually two paintings, displayed side by side, showing... The Duke and Duchess, both in profile, facing each other. We see the left-hand side of the Duke's face, and people who saw the painting at the time would have known why that was, because his right-hand side had been badly disfigured in a tournament, and he'd obviously asked to have his painting pictured from his best side. I think it's the story that goes along with their marriage, which is partly responsible for making this a painting, or a pair of paintings that many visitors come to see, and that's because they got married when Batista was only 14 and she bore him eight daughters, to the point where they were both desperate to have a son as well. Batista particularly prayed fervently for this and it's said that she offered her life to God in exchange for a son. If he would just give them a son, she'd be very happy to die. And a son was duly born in 1472 and six months later she died of pneumonia. And it's thought that this double portrait was commissioned by her husband as a memorial to her and as a thank you for the sacrifice that she'd been willing to make, that she would give up her life if only she could bear him a son. Something to contemplate as you look at the picture of the two of them. OK, so that's all I have planned to say in my very quick, very cursory roundup of the world's best art gallery. Or so at least everyone in Florence would tell you, and it may well be arguably correct. I hope you don't find it too dismissive, but I think we have to bear in mind how much else there is to see in Florence and how long this series would be if we gave everything the attention it could have. But I hope I've given you a flavour of the wonders to be seen there and certainly left you with the idea that even though the gallery has the dullest of names, Uffizi, the offices, it really does have the most wonderful contents. I hope if you go you'll enjoy seeing what I picked out as the highlights and enjoy even more finding your own highlights. 
In the next episode, we're going to leave art behind and do something completely different. I'm going to do a few minutes on two or three history books, which I found very useful when preparing the series. A quick summary of them, a few quotes, that sort of thing. And then devote most of the episode to travel writing, because Florence is one of those places that so many famous people have been to and then gone home and written about it. Or in some cases, spent a season or even a matter of years there and written about it. And we have their opinions to guide our thoughts on the city. So we'll have some quotes and extracts from various pieces across the century and particularly then in the last section, three or four books written more recently in the 20th century with lots of ideas to whet your appetite for a future visit. So I hope you'll be able to join me for that. And meanwhile, just thank you very much for listening. Grazie and wish you arrivederci. Arrivederci.